Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 232nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jamie Bossy. Jamie is a financial planner with Aspire Wealth Partners, an RA in Overland Park, Kansas, that oversees nearly $500 million in assets for 275 families. What's unique about Jamie, though, is how she's been able to balance her own responsibilities within a firm that serves affluent clients with writing a series of children's books on personal finance and a soon-to-be-published grown-up book addressing many of the money issues that young parents face as she crafts her own personal brand as the Money Boss Mom. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Jamie found that creating content for Aspire that spoke about financial decisions and issues that she was facing as a parent resonated with then ultimately began to attract a younger client base. How a teachable moment with her son was the inspiration for her first children's book, Milton Brings Home the Bacon. The mechanics of the publishing process that Jamie had to navigate to bring that book to life. And how Jamie has found that the value of being a published author isn't in the book sales per se, but rather the goodwill that having a book brings to herself as a planner, as well as to the firm she works for, which benefits from the additional reach that Jamie's brand can bring. We also talk about how Aspire charges both an AUM fee as well as a separate financial planning fee for their more traditional clients, as well as how they think about the value they bring to the table with an all-in fee that can approach 150 basis points. How Jamie's role in expanding the service model of Aspire to serve next-generation clients that she's been able to attract to the firm. The subscription fee business model that they've implemented and the technology they're using to make next-generation client meetings more efficient and how Aspire has been testing out a surge meeting structure in order to create space to work on bigger picture projects for the firm, as well as the challenges they're facing as they learn how to make surge meetings work for them. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jamie shares how her own career journey, from starting at a firm that ended up being too small to working at a bank that was too big, before settling in a mid-sized RA that was just right, mirrors the career progression of so many other young planners as they find their right fit over the span of three career jumps in the early years. The lessons that Jamie has found in the importance of maintaining professional relationships and not burning bridges because the financial advisor community is not all that large and you never know who you'll run into later in your career. And why Jamie feels it's so important for younger planners to get involved in the advisor community as a way not only to give back to the profession, but to stay connected as well. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jamie Bossy. Welcome, Jamie Bossy, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm I'm really looking forward to the to the discussion today, and and hearing an opportunity for you to share a little bit of your your journey and and what I find this this really interesting intersection of of just a a, a career journey unto itself. From you, you, I know you've lived in independent firms and the large bank world and and standalone advisory firms. But that you also have a, a a passion around financial literacy, writing, creating books. I, I as I view it, sort of, you're in the this process of creating a personal brand unto yourself. I know you call money boss mom, and you know, for for a lot of advisors, I find 
that that do have some element of kind of this creative spirit in them, there's often a bit of a challenge in just figuring out like how do you balance what I'm doing for my firm and what I'm doing in building my my own brand and what I'm doing in working with clients of the firm who maybe tend to skew a little bit more affluent and what some of us do with creative and financial literacy endeavors, which often reaches the people we don't necessarily work with as clients. So as we dive in, I, I think to get started, why don't you first just anchor us a little bit in the advisory firm itself? Like, Just tell us a bit about the advisory firm and where you are today. Well, I'm a financial planner at Aspire Wealth Partners in Overland Park, Kansas, but I actually work remotely for them in Manhattan, Kansas. So I was doing remote work before remote work was cool, but we do have an, a remote office now in Manhattan as well. But the firm is comprehensive, uh, fee-only. Size-wise, we are just under $500 million of AUM, and we service about 275 families. And of that, I serve probably, you know, 50 to 60 of them. And the firm, it's an RIA, but it's a pretty good size one. So we have 15 employees. Uh, our 16th will be starting this summer. And seven of those are lead advisors, including the two firm owners. And then we have a couple of planning team associates, uh, four administrative type operations folks, and then two stri that are strictly business development. So we're really focused on the comprehensive planning piece and being an integrative financial partner for our clients. So I'm I'm just kind of doing my napkin math here of close to 500 million of AUM, 275 families that go along with that. So, you know, your your average client is is somewhere in that like one and a half to two to two million dollar range in in asset size, just as I'm thinking about sort of typical folks that you serve, does that feel like a fair reckoning for typical client profile? Uh, it does for the overall firm, for sure. A lot of the clients that I am serving tend to be in the younger market, so tend to be in their like 30s and 40s, some in their 20s, more of the younger professionals that are more up-and-comers. So a lot of the clients I'm working with don't have that high of an asset management base just yet, but we're working on it. So, so how does that work from a, a business model end? Like, is the is the firm actually operating on a an AUM and assets under management model, and is that different for your clientele within the firm if you're working with younger clients who don't necessarily have the the same asset base? We have a few different service models and we're always, you know, a work in progress in that area. So, you know, our bread and butter way of doing business was, you know, the flat fee for comprehensive planning and then the percentage-based AUM model. And most clients did both. So they would be comprehensive planning and investment management. Uh, since we've been trying to effectively service more of the, you know, Gen X, Y, some Gen Z going forward, We've tried to, you know, have a new service model where it's more accessible. So we've done hourly based planning where we just do a, a financial plan and charge by the hour. So, you know, basically have an introductory meeting, figure out kind of the scope of the project and then give them a quote and then kind of track our time as we work on that. Have a couple meetings with them and 
then provide recommendations and then the relationship essentially terminates. We found that to be something we were using with, you know, that kind of younger clientele that didn't have uh, a lot to manage or, or too much going on that needed ongoing help. But we wanted to service this generation in an ongoing manner going forward. So we started doing more of a subscription-based model where they may pay an upfront fee. Sometimes we waive it if they're, you know, clients of kids or things like that. And then they have a monthly fee that they pay us for financial planning. And sometimes we manage investments with that, sometimes not. So we typically would give a fee discount of just doing a flat 1% fee for the AUM if we were managing money for them, because it would typically be under half a million dollars. So they would never hit any of the break points in our normal fee schedule. So a lot of the clients that I'm working with are more in that like subscription service model and may or may not have AUM with us at the, at the moment. So help me understand a little more just what the traditional fee model looked like in practice and, and then what you found is, is working for the younger clients that you're working with. So for the, I think you said the sort of the, the traditional historical model for the firm was flat fee for comprehensive planning and then charging for investment management separately. And most clients did both. So what, like, what was it, what was a typical flat planning fee? And then what was the typical AUM fee or, or fee schedule for you guys? Sure. So our normal comprehensive planning fee is 4,000 a year. And then we've charged that quarterly. And then for the AUM schedule, it's a, it's a declining scale. So it starts at 1.2% for, for the first half a million and then goes down to 1% for the next half a million and then down to 0.8 and, and goes down a couple more tiers from there. So when we offer the flat 1% fee, you know, it's generally assuming that they have less than 500,000 of assets to manage. So a little bit of a discount for them. And and the planning fee, you said you were charging not not just like a one-time $4,000 fee, but $4,000 per year. So this was like a, this is an ongoing fee for you every year. Like it's 4,000 a year for planning and wherever you are in the AUM fee schedule for investment management and you know, you pay for both separately and you get both separately or one or the other, if you only want one or the other. Correct. Yeah. So it's an ongoing relationship uh, and an ongoing arrangement where we really, you know, we act as their personal CFO for the year and help them navigate things as they come up, usually meeting with those clients two to three times a year in a formal meeting. And then, you know, as things arise throughout the year. Interesting. And, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, how do you, in that model, because I know for a lot of firms, if they're already doing ongoing investment management, they're already meeting with their clients on an ongoing basis to the point where sometimes it like, it gets hard to not end up doing all the planning work for them. Because if you're in the meeting with the client who's paying you an ongoing AUM fee and they ask you a planning question, are you really going to say like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't answer that because you don't you don't play us for planning. You only pay us for investment management. Like, is that actually how it works in your firm? Like, you know, you only, you only get to ask us investment questions if you're on the investment side, unless you are paying the $4,000 a year planning fee, and then we'll have the planning conversations with you as well. 
Yeah, that's a fun question. It seems it's a lot easier to serve clients that do, you know, the comprehensive model or engage us for planning. And we feel like we do a better job for people who, you know, do the full planning with us because that's what you base what you're investing money for on, you know, based on what the overall plan is. So, so the bulk of the people do do some form of planning and we try to encourage that at the beginning of the relationship. So usually people will either engage us in that comprehensive manner for planning or an hourly plan up front and then maybe do investment management only going forward. But how we've typically managed when things come up, like planning discussions in meetings that are meant to be just investment meetings, we address the questions in, in the time there. And if we can you know, solve it in the meeting, great. If not, and we know it'll take you know, some analysis or scenarios to do outside of the meeting, then we would quote an hourly fee for that sort of scenario if we're not solving it with the discussions that we're having in the meeting. Okay. So uh, interesting. So if, if, if they just answer you, ask you a question, you can literally answer off the top of your head. You won't say like, well, I'm sorry, you're not paying the planning fee. Like I can't give you that answer. But if they're going to ask any level of planning questions that actually go beyond what's happening in the planning meeting itself, if I got to do work for you after the meeting follows up, like just to let you know, going to send you an invoice for that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But luckily, like most people have done a plan with us at some point at the beginning of their relationship. So we at least have some planning background with each of them, you know, to work from. So, And so is if you're charging clients an ongoing quarterly planning fee, does that mean you're literally doing planning stuff every quarter? Is there, is there like a planning meeting every quarter, planning check in every quarter? Or is that just we're spreading the fee out quarterly, but we don't necessarily meet with you every single quarter? How does it actually work for what people get for the ongoing uh, $1,000 a quarter fee? Yeah, good question. You know, we're not tied to the quarterly you know, we have to, we charge you by a quarter, so you have to get value each quarter. So we're not really tied to that. Typically we would have, you know, two or three meetings with the client each year. So, you know, that can be, you know, that but there's a lot of value in those meetings, but then throughout the year, I mean, we try to touch our clients at least every other month in some way with a check-in phone call, email, or a lot of times they're sending us stuff to look at, you know, during those non-meeting times. So I feel like, you know, we're providing a lot of value over the year. It might not be broken down, you know, on a quarterly basis, though. Okay. And and just when you talk about doing, uh, it's called like planning stuff in the aggregate throughout the year, just what do you do for clients that entails an additional $1,000 a quarter, $4,000 $4, a year fee for the planning work? Is there a fix like... We're going to update your plan every 12 months and we're going to do this tax analysis. Is it, is it simply a, we're going to check in with you and have whatever planning conversations we're having, but can't tell you what it's going to be because I don't know what your life's going to be. How, how do you actually, like, what do you commit to doing or how do you explain the value of what they're going to get when you say, yeah, you're paying that AUM fee that starts at 1.2%, but there's a separate $4,000 fee. But hey, for that, you're going to get dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Like how, how do you, how do you fill that in? Yeah, good question. I feel like that is you know always the the thing that you struggle with, right? Because you're selling something that is invisible until they actually are in it. 
So what what we try to do throughout the year, it kind of depends on what's going on with the client because we'll always address, you know, a transition they're going through or hot button issues that they're facing, you know, first and foremost, you know, regardless of what kind of calendar our schedule's on. But, you know, typically in the past, we've had a, a flow where we would, you know, the first meeting of the year, you know, you're checking in on taxes because they are working on filing them at that time or have filed them by then looking at the net worth currently. And then we always prepare a comparative net worth. So what of with a history of net worths as long as we've known them. So and that's always a cool thing to share so we can see how things have changed over time. And then if they have children, you know, we'll look at the education piece generally in that first, you know, meeting of the year. And then market outlook, anything we're working on investment wise or would suggest change wise, you know, we would talk about then too. And then we would move into, you know, the second meeting of the year, a lot of times would be more focused on the financial independence plan. So those are the, you know, retirement projections that we like to, we like to refer to as financial independence because it's more the, the time where you don't have to work if you don't want to, but you can if you choose to. So kind of diving into those projections and updating them, if it makes sense, if it doesn't for that client, we won't. Taking a deeper look at the insurance side, you know, checking in there to see if we need to do anything differently. And then, you know, another check-in on investments and savings plans. And then the third meeting of the year, you know, a check-in on estate planning or things that are changing there, which doesn't always need to be updated every year. And then generally we'll, we'll provide a tax projection and suggestions on things that we need to change if we have some recommendations there. So that was kind of like our normal flow of things we would check in on, but it depends on what's going on in their lives. You know, we'll address whatever, whatever we need to and whatever makes sense. I'm just struck by that cadence that beginning of the year is sort of the tax preparation and net worth check-in. Second meeting is the retirement slash financial independence check-in. Third meeting towards the end of the year is the estate planning and end of year tax projections check-in. I guess, and you just repeat that cycle for clients every year because those are always things that could change and there's always something new to talk about. Right. And now we're trying to move into a surge process. So where we try to concentrate the client meetings all in the same, you know, six week period at each juncture. So, you know, our thought, we're, we're actually trying the first surge right now. So too new, too new to write at the moment. But the thought is that we would have, you know, the associates and the planning team preparing all, you know, everything in the software, making sure it's up to date, collecting tax returns if they are, are available to be collected. And then sending, we have a new tool called the Return on Life and sending that out where it's like kind of a questionnaire to see how people are feeling in different areas of their of their lives right so it asks questions like you know how are you feel you feel rewarded in your career you know and you select you know like 1 to 10 or you're fairly compensated for the value you bring and you rate it 1 to 10 you're living your life on purpose rate that 1 to 10 you know, your return on leisure, your return on health, things like that. So more of the the broader topics, not necessarily all financial. So the... And where does that come from? Just the, the return on life 
system or tool or things that you're using? Yep. It's a, it's a tool, um, by Mitch Anthony that is just called the return on life tool. And it has a few different parts to it. So that return on life that I was just describing with the, the sliding scale for, you know, how are you feeling about your career? How are you feeling about your health? That's one tool within it. And then there's also a fiscalosophy tool, which is more about. So your, your philosophy, but financial. So your fiscal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Play on words. So, so it has two parts to it where in the fiscalosophy, you, you kind of identify your philosophy on something like a, a topic like debt. And then you select your comfort level with where you are right now in that area. So you say debt and the sliding scale is, you know, I don't want to, I want to be debt free versus I like to finance everything. And then the comfort level is, you know, I feel really good about where I'm at with my debt or I'm uncomfortable. And so there's various questions in that too, to kind of get at a little more of the the history with money, kind of their their feelings on different topics. There's questions about how they feel about the stock market in there, their comfort level with insurance knowledge. So tell me more about how, I guess, how surge meetings are working, but I guess even before that, just why surge meetings? Like why, it sounds like you already had a cycle to how you were doing these. So why, why are you trying a, a different structure to it now? The thought with the surge was to bring more efficiencies to the way we do things. So we now have, you know, a team with a with associates that can do more work because really, you know, a lot of times the financial planners were doing a lot of the financial planning work for each client up until this year. And so now that we have more of the associates built out, the idea is that they can do a lot of the updates and collect information pre-surge before the meeting time. And then we can get into a groove with clients where we're, you know, having the same conversations or addressing the same issues, kind of all, you know, we're kind of in that mode of like, we're in meeting mode, we're in net worth mode, we're in tax mode. And so then the idea is that you kind of knock all those things out. And then by the end of the surge, you can then zone in on something else, right? So if you're trying to get some projects done or want to do a lot of speaking engagements or other business development activities, that that would be a good time to do those. And so how many, how many surge meetings are you actually trying to do over the, the six-week cycle? Like how many, how many days per week, how many meetings per day are you actually trying to do in, in this surge process? Yep. So the format we're doing right now is, and like I said, it's our first surge, so it's going to evolve for sure. But where Mondays, there's no surge meetings scheduled and there's a team check-in. And so the idea is that on Monday, you kind of review what you have going on for the week, you know, check in, make sure you don't need anything else for those meetings, and then kind of read the meeting notes from last time and get, get caught up. Tuesday through Thursday are then your surge days. So you would have uh, generally four meetings each of those days, maybe five. And then on Friday, again, there'd be no surge meetings scheduled. And that could be your, you know, record your notes, record tasks, you know, transfer them to the associates to get done, you know, those sort of things. So that's kind of the ideal picture. What we found so far in this surge is that it's pretty hard because, you know, you have those people kind of in that cycle of client meetings, 
but then you also have newer clients coming in, right? So you're not going to say, well, I'm not going to meet with you for six weeks because we're in a surge right now and, you know, we're going to put you on hold. So, you know, we've had meetings on Mondays and Fridays and so it hasn't worked exactly like, like we'd planned. And then a lot of those clients that I'm serving that are more on that subscription model, you know, they've never really been on a, a meeting cycle because we just kind of meet as often as they need it or when something's going on. So, you know, those meetings were sprinkled in along the way as well. So it's a work in progress. I can see where it could be, it could be a really good thing, you know, if we get it figured out. <laughs> but the, the idea would be that we'd have two surges a year and then the summertime would be more for a more informal meeting with the clients, like a, you know, a phone call, a check-in, a lunch, a coffee, happy hour, you know, just something that, that wasn't as, as formal. So as you, as you look at this and, and some of the challenges that you're having with it so far, I mean, are, are you, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how are you envisioning bridging this? Like, are you, would you try to put you, the younger new clients in the subscription model into a more regular meeting cycle so they could fit a meeting surge model or, or do you just potentially end up saying to them, like, we're just going to be less available over these six week cycles or, you know, do, do other things with them that don't require the same level of meeting time to fill the gap. Like, are are you, you know, w- will you adopt the model to fit the clients or kind of shape the clients to fit around them or surge model? Yeah, I think we'll, you know, we'll adapt to what makes sense for the clients. We are, we have a debrief, you know, in a couple of weeks on how this first round went, but we've had some conversations so far. And I think, you know, it'll be a combination of things. I think maybe we will take like a week off in the middle instead of having straight surge weeks in a row where we'll have a, a week where no surge meetings are scheduled, but maybe that's when you meet with the other subscription model folks or the newer clients that are coming on board. Alternatively, maybe there's something different that the associates can do in that process for the subscription service folks or for new clients coming on board. You know, we've also talked about having the business development dedicated folks. Maybe they do more of the philosophy with the new clients that are coming on board during these surge so if times. You, if you happen to get a new client who starts like right before a surge, just someone can meet with them to do something, but they might not be in the usual quote unquote advisor cycle yet because their new onboarding advisor is in surge season. Right, exactly. So so we, we're brainstorming different ideas right now, but um, well, we don't have the solution figured out just yet. And would you ever just tell a, a newer client like, so excited you've joined us, really glad you're going to be working with us. You know, we're going to start our new onboarding cycle in June, <laughs> six, six weeks from now, like, so excited to work with you, but just that's how it works around here. Like we'll, we'll take you on in June. I don't, I personally don't like that idea because I feel like when a client has reached out or a prospect has reached out to us to join us, you know, they've been sitting on it for a while already, probably where they've, you know, been following us and reading articles about us or articles that we post, or it's been on their mind for a while. And I think, and there's usually like a trigger or something that's happened that they are like, okay, now it's time to do this. And so if they're ready to move forward, you know, I want to be ready to move forward too. So how are you preparing all this stuff for the 
the meetings? I mean, I guess I'm assuming return on life just has literally like questionnaires or tools that you send out to clients, but you talked about like doing check-ins on taxes and tracking net worth over time. And so is that, is that a bunch of Word and Excel documents for you? Is that planning software? Is that other tools? How, how are you actually preparing all those things for the the client meetings? So for this surge, the associates have been si- assigned out to different, you know, all the different clients and they will, you know, start a workflow and we use Redtail for that. And then they will, you know, read the last couple sets of meeting notes and any, you know, activities and tasks that were out there recently closed and make some notes of that. And then they will send an email to the clients gathering any information that we don't have readily available as it applies to net worth. So, you know, a lot of times we don't have bank account balances or mortgage balances on hand. You know, a lot of times the investments are linked up to our Money Guide Pro system and sometimes they link bank accounts and other information, but but usually those need an update. So they'll send that out, an email out that says, hey, we're going to talk about net worth and investments and education planning this round. Could you send over current bank account balances? And here is a, you know, our a new tool we're using with an, kind of an explanation of it. If you'd please, you know, take this survey before the meeting, that'd be great. And then so that all happens in the weeks before the meeting. And then all of that information is then in the workflow that I can look at. So you know, theoretically, on the Monday that I have these surge meetings, I would then go in as the planner and go through all the workflows of the meetings I have this week and then see if there's anything I need or anything that I feel is missing. And then the associate would then have updated Money Guide Pro with any information that needs to change and then anything else we need to review, like if we decided we needed to look at the retirement projections or anything like that. And then they would prepare the net worth statement from Money Guide Pro. And then the comparative net worth where we show kind of the net worths over time that we have access to, that is a spreadsheet that we build that just has kind of the breakdown of, you know, it has columns at the top that are like, you know, June 2011 through June of 2021. And then each year has the the value for cash assets, investment assets, and, you know, hard assets, and then the net worth for that year. And then there's a, a graph that shows how it's changed over time. And so they'll prepare all that ahead of time. So that'll be ready for us when we have the meeting. And then when you talk about doing check-ins on taxes early in the year and tax projections at the end of the year, what 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 are you what tools are you using for that? Is that also an a money guide function or a spreadsheet function or something else? We use Holista Plan for tax projections. So it's a pretty slick tool where you can, you know, upload last year's tax return and then it starts the whole process for you for this year. And then you just add what has changed, you know, for this year and then get a projection for the rest of the year. And so and so as you go through this cycle with clients now, you know, are, are you are you finding it's feeling like a a time savings in the surge? Is it is it exhausting because you're going through the surge? Is it like relieving because you know it's just a limited number of weeks and and then and then you get, you know, a 
a much lighter season where there aren't any client meetings for a while. How are you feeling as you're going through the surge? Yeah, I feel like in the the third week of the surge was kind of the the worst, right? Where you start getting some fatigue and start feeling like, okay, am I have I missed anything? Do I, you know, did I get all those tasks from the last couple of weeks accomplished and off to the associates? So not yet. I feel like the efficiency piece is getting better because typically, you know, last year, this time of year, if we were preparing net worths and comp- comprehensive net worths for clients, I would have done it for all of my clients on my own. So I would have had a lot more behind the scenes work to do. So I think having the associates involved now is really good, but it's kind of their first go round with meeting prep. So there's always, you know, bugs to work out as they learn who the clients are, learn what they like to see and that sort of thing. So was it, I, I guess I'm sort of wondering like what was it, was it surge that surges that made it shift from you doing the, you doing the more of the prep work to the me, of the meetings to the associates, or was that a, a separate decision that the firm just made in general? Like we need associates doing more of this stuff. So our lead advisors can spend more client facing time. Was it kind of a fortuitous happenstance that it just all came, came together at the same time? Like, I'm, I'm just wondering, was the, like, was, are the surges actually driving a shift in who does what in the firm? Or that was just also something you were working on in, in divvying up who does what? Well, I would say for the last, you know, five years or so, we've really tried to figure out what the team structure looks like, how we service clients and making it more efficient. So it's been on the docket to be more intentional about, you know, who does what, how the client meetings look and, you know, what the deliverables are. And, you know, it's kind of been trial and error along the way. And when we, we've had associates for several years, but a lot of their time was dedicated to projects at the time. So like, for instance, we moved from eMoney to Money Guide Pro. So that was a big, you know, project shift that the associates focused on. We moved from CS Planner, which is a Thomson Reuters tax software to Holista Plan. And so that was a, you know, a project that they managed. So, so previously, a lot of the associates we're, we're doing, you know, tasks that were extra and not as involved in the planning process. So now, you know, we want to have a true, you know, team around the client and really leverage the associates. So they're getting good experience and, you know, it alleviates more time for the lead advisors to do in more strategic thinking and, you know, more business development activities. And how have clients responded just when you reached out and were like, so you're going to be doing a meeting in one of these six weeks. <laughs> no choices. You got to do it one of these six weeks because we're doing surgeries. Yeah. You probably don't explain it. Quite <laughs> that way, but, right. but like, what what's it like as you go out to clients? Because I'm assuming this is a different thing from their end when you start coming to them and saying like you have you have to schedule in one of these six week time slots. Yeah. So for the on the client side of things, they don't they haven't seen anything too much different, right? So we send out a scheduling link and it shows the available time slots. For this surge schedule, the time slots just so happen to be in a six week increment on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at, you know, nine, 11, one, or three. <laughs> so they might've noticed that like the time frames were different, that they couldn't schedule for like, you know, a random time outside of those on the hour 
times, but it didn't feel any different because that's the same as how we scheduled before, you know, sending out the link and they could choose from the available time slots. And for all they know, you you might even still be doing Monday and Friday meetings. It just so happens that you didn't have as many time slots and someone else already grabbed them. So I guess I'll just grab one of the ones that's open on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. Correct. Yeah. So we did like a whole separate, like a surge calendar link. So so if the clients that were on the meeting surge would get this surge calendar link and that's what was available. And then some people did notice. So, you know, we started this surge in March and you know, some people were used to meeting, you know, a couple weeks into January for their first meeting of the year. So some of them, you know, were kind of like, oh man, we should have had a meeting by now. What's going on? So that I think has been the only thing that they've really noticed other than there's more names involved in, you know, the correspondence before the meeting, right? So instead of getting a message from me that says, you know, what we need to collect for them before the meeting, you know, it was one of the associates, you know, with me copied on it. Because, because part of the kind of the, it sounds like part of the virtue of, of going to this structure is if you're going to do a whole bunch of these meetings and a surge, it basically like you, you have to be more structured about how you do it, right? Otherwise you're going to just drown everyone. But the, but the fact that you were more structured about it seems to have helped also get clearer about exactly who's going to do what and which tasks are assigned to who in the first place. Yeah, for sure. And it and in the workflows kind of keep us on track for what's the next step and where we're where are we at with each of the clients. So, you know, after the surge week and after I, you know, record notes for my meeting and assign tasks, then I take the next step in the workflow and then our associates will schedule, you know, what the summer session is. So we make a note of whether we think the next, you know, check-in would be a phone call or a coffee date or, you know, a lunch date or what, what that would be and, and about when that should be. And then, then you close out the workflow. So Jamie, how we understand you're like, you're in a firm that's, I guess, has historically worked with a bit more of, I'll just call it like the traditional pre-retiree, retiree, fairly affluent sort of client. Now you're, you're doing more of this work with younger clients trying out subscription models. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, how does that come about that you're on board with the firm that works with a little bit more of an older clientele and then come and say like, hey, I want to work with some other types of clients that we haven't worked with in the past and try out a business model that we haven't done in the past? Because I I know a lot of advisors that have like, I have tried this and couldn't get their firms on board. They're like, nope, please just go find more multimillionaire retirees, please. So uh, like, how does this come about in your firm that that you start working with a different kind of clientele and going this direction? Well, my firm, you know, we we try to be forward thinking and think about what what's coming next, right? So, I didn't have to convince them that working with the younger generation in different ways, you know, makes sense for the future. They were just kind of hesitant on, you know, what resources do we devote to this? You know, how much time is this going to take to develop? But they, there were three of us at the firm that were in our 30s that were like, hey, you know, we're getting a lot of questions from people our age. We want to help service them in a way that makes sense for them and for us. So, you know, what do you what do you think about us trying some things with this new generation? And, you know, the, for, the firm was on board. They didn't devote a lot of extra, you know, time for development of these things, but just said, hey, if you want to try something you know, you have our support. 
So, you know, go, go make it happen. And if, you know, clients revenue are coming in, we'll, we'll figure out what to do with it. It is. And it, and it took a while, really. You know, I think we had probably four people in the subscription service, you know, for a good six months or so. And then, and then now it's becoming, you know, there's probably 35 people doing it now. So it's grown quickly and it's really good to have, you know, a different service line to offer people that don't fit into our normal, normal genre. So where do these clients start coming from? I mean, is, is this like within the client base, you get the, you know, older clients who start referring their kids because they say, oh, now you can work with my kids as well? Or is this like you getting out and marketing in your own world to try to try to bring in clients that that maybe fit this model because it's closer to the the your friends and family and peer network in the first place? I'd say some of both, really. So we did have a lot of you know, second generation children of clients that now, you know, they have careers, they have jobs, they have kids, you know, they need some help navigating life. And then, you know, more of the firm was really, you know, age 40 and under. So a lot of the advisors at our firm. So we, you know, we do speaking opportunities that, that lead to new client relationships. And then, many of us do a lot of blog writing that we're posting on social media. So our friends are seeing it. You know, our colleagues are seeing it. And so there's just more people reaching out to us that are, you know, in that in that younger generation that didn't necessarily fit into what we were doing before. And and me in particular, a lot of the the blogs that I would write for our firm tended to be more focused on, you know, people that are going through the same things I am, right? So you're trying to manage your career while you're dealing with daycare expenses. You know, how do you deal with maternity leave as a business person and the financial impacts that come with that? And so I was kind of speaking to that that generation in a lot of the things I was doing. It just it always strikes me that for so many of us advisors, just our clientele basically end up being ourselves plus or minus 10 years, like just because that's, those are our natural circles. And like, that's who we move in, move, move around with. And, you know, if, if the problems we're experiencing that we talk about and can relate to and can commiserate with on others, like we tend to build rapport with those people because they're going through the same things at the same time. And we get it because we're going through it too. And, and just that, that becomes the nucleus of forming your marketing or forming your relationships and and starting to bring in clients. Exactly. Yeah, you're kind of developing a niche, but by accident. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, <laughs> a niche of people like me who are dealing with what I deal with is like always, well, not always, but very, very often works as a niche because you know the the first thing about serving a niche well is really understanding their needs and issues, and like if that's you probably have a pretty good perspective on their needs and issues. So how did this, I guess, evolve or go from there? Because I know you you do a lot more now in the realm of social media and writing and 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 books and and a lot of stuff in this direction. So is that did this like just become a rabbit hole that you went down of started writing a little bit of blogging for, you know, stuff I was going through, got clients through it, decided to do more, decided to do more. And now, holy cow, I do a whole lot of this stuff. How did that come about for you? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I was doing a lot of writing on, on this area, you know, to, to this audience, and then did a lot of speaking engagements on things that 
people were asking about or things that people were facing that are in that age group. So I ended up doing some speaking events on, you know, cash flow management systems, because that seems to be a big piece that impacts uh, specifically this generation. Because cash flow, cash flow is hard, you know, for everybody, but learning to, to manage all the expenses being a parent and, you know, they change every year too. So, you know, one year you have one kid in daycare, the next year you have two, all of a sudden daycare is more expensive than your mortgage, you know, those sort of things. And then two, you know, it seems like this, the generation of parents now are largely, you know, millennials or the you know low end of Gen X, top end of Gen Z, and they're the ones that have a lot more I don't know financial cards stacked against them in a lot of ways, right? Because they're the the kids of crisis because they have had economic downturns at very pivotal points in their development. So yeah, just just so much you know you know content in this area of and it's such an interesting generation to write to. So so where did it? Like, where did it go from there? Just you, you, you started doing some speaking on, just, you know, issues issues that you were familiar with because you were going through them as well. What came next? Where did it go from there? Well, I ended up uh, getting some more questions on, you know, how to teach kids about money. So people, you know, my age wanting to know how to set their kids up for better success than what they had. So a lot of questions around teaching kids financial lessons and values. And I actually had a, you know, a personal story. I had a five-year-old at the time was my oldest and then a younger baby. And I was shopping with the five-year-olds and he was like, Hey, I, can you buy this, you know, $60 grave digger remote control car? And I had to say, well, no, you know, that's not in the budget for today. And he says, well, why don't you just buy it on Amazon then? And I said, hmm, I've, I'm a failure. My kid does not know that Amazon is a financial, like it's something that you give money to, right? It's not, so, I hadn't even thought about that, right? Like when you go to the store, you pull out your wallet and pay. When you're at home, you just click on it on Amazon and it appears at your house in 24 to 48 hours. Yeah, exactly. So he thought it was just this magical service that brings you everything your heart desires, right? To well, the it, it is. It is kind of a magical service that brings you everything <laughs> your heart desires. It is kind but of magical. It costs money. There is there is a caveat to it. True, true. So so I decided I wanted to write in the children's book space too. You know, I was already doing a lot of writing and was getting questions on teaching kids uh, financial lessons and values, and then seeing it in my own life that oh gosh, my kids need help with this. And so I decided to start writing some children's books on the basic concepts of, of money. I did some research on what different topics kids can understand at different age groups and started writing around those topics. Wait, wait, wait. like there's a little bit of a jump there of, you know, realize my kids don't quite understand how money works and the difference between like pulling your wallet out the store and, and buying on Amazon. So I decided to write a children's book. <laughs> I feel like for some of us, it's like, so I decided to get a book and figure out how to teach my kids about money or go on the internet and do some research. Not like, so I'm going to write a children's book. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I've always enjoyed writing. It's it's kind of my jam. And so I felt like it was a, a gift I could use to help, you know, communicate this to my kids. And we do a lot of reading at our house. And so I thought that a book would be the perfect way to do that. So, you know, I first did have to research, like, what concepts can these kids even understand at the age that they are? So I looked up a lot of resources on on that and then decided to write around just really basic things like understanding that, you know, things cost money and understanding that you have to you know, work to earn money and that sometimes you have to wait and save to get what you really want. So some of the concepts that are really hard for adults to understand, you know, (laughs) and we at the time had a super cute corgi dog named Milton and, you know, as a family pet. And so he was the perfect protagonist for the story. I did the writing about him. And so I thought the kids would be, you know, really interested in that and know that kids everywhere, I mean, that love animals and using them in stories. And, and so this became like Milton, the Corgi teaches you about, teaches your kids about personal finance. Yes. Milton, the money savvy pup. Milton, the money savvy pup. So, so what happens from there? I I mean, just like, I get like, I want to start putting some words down on a page to become a children's book, but you know, this, this became a children's book. So like, how does, how does that actually happen? Yeah. So there's, you know, I've found there's a lot of different ways to publish a book these days. You know, there's the traditional route where you would send your content into an agent or a, or a publishing company, and then you might hear back, you might not from them. And so I, I, I wanted to explore what other options were out there. So I signed up for a conference that was the, it was like a children's books, writers and illustrators conference. It was a one day deal in my area. And so I went to that just to see what, like, how does it work? What's out there? And so you meet with different publishers and they give you some feedback on your writing so far. And then a little bit of insight into the traditional publishing process. And what I learned from, from that is that, you know, it can be really expensive and it is a long road that may or may not work out, right? So you might hire an agent and it, and it might, nothing may come of it. Or you may send your content into, you know, 12 different publishers and never hear back from any of them. So I decided to explore some of the other options with, you know, self-publishing options through Amazon, which is actually through Kindle Direct Publishing. And that's actually what I ended up going with. I had a an old manager who had published a book, you know, self-published one through Amazon several years before that. So I had a conference call with him, talked about how it all worked, and then did some research into what that process looks like. And it's really pretty straightforward, but you have to figure out a lot of the formatting. And so that's a really difficult thing if you don't speak that language in particular. So I've not done a lot of you know, formatting and editing in Adobe and things like that. So that was all a foreign language to me. And then I don't draw pictures and, you know, writing a children's book, having pictures is a a big part of it. So then I had to go down the road of how do you find an illustrator? What does that cost? How does that work? And so I had to 
you know, do a lot of Googling, work with this organization that had the conference to see what's out there, asked everybody I knew that had any contact to graphic design people, and then was just passed around kind of person to person to person until until I found someone that was like, you know what, I've never done that before, but I'll give it a try. So then her and I kind of jumbled our way through the process of, you know, what resources are out there on this direct publishing site and and how do we how do we put it together? So so it's definitely like a learning process with a lot of stumbling along the way. But once we got it figured out, you basically just kind of upload it to the Amazon system once you've met all their requirements. And then you can order a a pre-copy of it so you can see if it actually prints well. And then you can make it live for sale. And the cool thing about doing the the self-publishing route through Amazon is that you don't have to buy a lot of copies up front. So a lot of publishing you have to, you know, you're fifteen thousand dollars in before you even sell a book, you know, or you have to buy a bunch of books on the front end to to sell as a part of the publishing process. Well but that's how the publisher makes sure they cover their costs is you you buy you buy your own books to make their profits up front. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But with the Amazon route, it's all print on demand. So you just upload it into their system and then when someone buys it, they they print it and mail it to them. And so you don't have to have an inventory of stock on hand at any given time. Oh interesting. So so once you get to the point of like I've I've figured out how to just make my book, design it, get it into whatever the the digital format is that Amazon requires, you essentially just give them the you give them the book materials. Anybody who wants to buy it online, they will print one on the spot to send to them and uh, because they've got all your materials and and just that's it. And then I guess they take their piece and you get your piece and off you go. Yep. And then they just pay you out each month from what your proceeds are for that month. And they send you a tax form at the end of the year. So it's actually a pretty slick deal. So what did it what did it take for actually just bringing the book together then? I mean, you you I mean, did you ultimately like hire the illustrator? Did you like partner with them and you each get a a split of each book proceeds? Like just how does it work to make this come together? Yeah, we had to talk about all that and you know, it was our first time for either of us dealing with something like that. So we decided to do more of an hourly rate for her time that she would, you know, track and bill me for. And then she would not be part of the the proceeds going forward because we felt that that would be just a little difficult to track on an ongoing basis. So, so she billed for her time up front and then I paid her, and then that was kind of the end of that engagement. Very cool. And then, how does it work once Amazon, I guess, just has your book? Like people order it online, and do they set the price? Do you set the price? Like you set the price, and then they get an X percent of it. Just how, does it actually work when you start selling your books through Amazon? Yeah, you you can set the price, but they have a minimum. So there's a, a minimum printing fee. So to to create the book, to print the book, it costs, you know, three dollars and change total. So then above that, Amazon has to make 
a portion and you make a portion. So they won't let you set it lower than a certain amount. Like for mine, they wouldn't let me set it lower than $8.99. So, and then it'll show you, you know, you can sit, you can kind of plug in different costs and see like what you would make at that cost level. So you can kind of play with it to see what, what makes the most sense. And, and so as you go about this, I mean, just is the, was the vision, like, are you, you, you wrote it just because you wanted to write it and get it out there? Or is your goal like, sc- like scaling up a book business and, and trying to make money from the books as an author? Like just what's the, what's the, bi- what's the vision of it for you? Yeah, I think the the main vision was to to get it out there, right? And I could see it being a really fun thing to have with my kids, but then also to use with clients, right? So it's it's a fun gift to give clients who are in my same, you know, stage in life where they have young kids, trying to teach them about money, trying to, you know, get through all the normal things. And so I actually had a lot of fun with it. it I it was published in 2018. And in 2019, before the pandemic, you know, you could go into schools on a normal basis. So Milton and I would actually go to the schools. We were part of school assemblies where they would put the book up on the big screen and I would read it to the classes or the school. And then they could all ask questions and pet Milton on the way out, you know, so it was really kind of a fun Oh, so we're not just talking metaphorically, like you brought the corgi with you. I brought the corgi, yes. And he he rode in a wagon and he was he was pretty old, like he was 10 years old. So he would just kind of lay there and make well, funny I, noises when the kids would pro- pet probably, him. Probably good in the school environment <laughs> that he was just a, a little older and chill. Yeah, he just lay there and like, please pet me, children, come here. So, so that was a lot of fun. And we read at daycare centers and libraries. And so it was just kind of a fun, fun thing, fun way to give back to the community, but also, you know, get the name of the book out there. Because I don't think that writing books, I don't think the actual selling of the books is where the value is financially or otherwise. So I think kind of the value that comes with it is to say that you're an author or be able to use the book in some other way for speaking events or for client gifts or just other, other outlets. And so is that how you're approaching it now? Like, what do you see as the, the, the value that you're, that you're drawing from having written the book and put it out there? Yeah. So it tied really well into the the content that I have about teaching kids about money. So like, for instance, I would speak at, you know, a women's business event and then talk about teaching your kids about money. Oh, by the way, I have this kid's book. You, you know, you can buy a copy today if you'd like. I also use it. I've partnered with other children's book authors in the financial sector, and we've done you know book readings and exchanged social media posts and things like that to just pump up each other's books and and get the word of financial literacy out there. And so, and so, where does this go from here for you? Like, is this like did did my thing got my book out there, or like now now I'm on a kick of books and I want to do more books, and books are going to be my thing. <laughs> uh, I do. I do like books. Books are my thing. I would say I have, I've written a second Milton book, actually a third one now too. The second one was written in 2019, but then with, you know, 2020, there was some issues getting publishing done and having kids at home. So it was hard to 
get anything done. So that book is coming out this year. And then the third Milton book should be illustrated probably sometime toward the end of this year. And then we can get that one out there. But the the second one, you know, the first book was really about understanding that you need money to buy things and that money is earned by working and that sometimes you have to wait and save to get what you really want. And then the second one is about the concept of every time you get paid, splitting up some of that income into what you'll give to charity, what you're going to save or what you're going to spend. So kind of the three jars. The the like, yeah, spend, save, give jars. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that concept. And then the third one is just a a bedtime story, a good night Milton story. Very cool. And, and, and how does this work with respect to the, the firm? Like, is this, is this viewed as part of your job? Is this just entirely out there in your own thing? You know, for some firms, even just the like, so who technically owns the book and the intellectual property of the book? Uh, like, how does that work for you? Yeah, so I am the owner of the book and and all the rights to it. The firm, it, you know, they 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 own all my blog content. To, you know, that's I've put out there on their on their site. But you know, I think the firm really supports me doing activities like this because you know it's it's something new, it's something different, it's something that sets our firm apart and has led to a lot of cool opportunities. So, so it's not owned by the firm, but, but they support me going down this route and kind of building, building a name for myself. Well, and obviously, ultimately, if you're, if you're building a brand and, and, and helping to drive business and bringing clients like the firm will do okay in this as well. So, so as you look back over just the the journey of all of this. And and I know even you've been through a lot of different firm environments of, you know, small firms and big banks and, and, you know, kind of in the, the independent RA world. What surprised you the most about the path for building your career as a, as a financial advisor? Well, like you said, I've, I've seen a few different versions of how financial planning is done out there. You know, my first job out of college was in a, in a small RRA where there was one lead advisor and two associates and then two kind of part-time people that were not really on the scene. So being in a small environment that was, you know, it was comprehensive planning shop. It was fee, not fee only, it was fee-based. And so there was commissions also. And in that kind of small of an environment, it was a perfect place to be at the time because I got to have my hands in everything, right? So I got to really know what happens behind the scenes in a firm. So I was, you know, doing everything from meeting with clients to tax projections to being the compliance officer to being, you know, the office maid because we, we did all our own vac cleaning of the office. And so got to really be involved in whatever I wanted to be involved with. So that was a, a cool kind of learning environment. And then on the big bank side, you know, I was in the private banking area, which is where more of the, you know, million dollar and above clientele are. And so I got to learn, you know, a lot about the trust side and about, uh, branding and you know how how big banks operate. So so that was interesting to see how they kind of branched into more financial planning 
and how they plan to do it going forward. So how did you get from small RIA to like private banking and big bank? It was actually a function of moving across the country. So, so the independent firm that I worked with in the, for my first job, you know, I found through the FPA through a, you know, career day situation. And then uh, my husband and I moved to Portland, Oregon. We were living in Dallas, Texas at the time. And, you know, when we, when I moved out there, I was just looking for any and every opportunity that might be available. So I, you know, broadened my search to, you know, to banks and CPA firms and to just to see what was out there. Got the job in the private bank side, starting more on the investment side, actually. So working with, you know, the investment management side and then got my CFP while I was there and moved into a more financial planning related role a couple of years later. So how do you contrast like being in small RA world versus big bank world? Well, I would say, you know, in the big bank, it really is a machine, right? So it's a, you're just a little kind of a cog in the machine that, that can be replaced at any time. And I think in, in the RA world, there's more of a focus on planning being the center of the relationship with the client you know, talking about the goals, the recommendations, you know, more of the, the life planning side. And the bank is more about, you know, the asset management side. So let's get the assets in the door. Let's get it in trust so it stays with the bank for the long term, you know, really focused on that investment management piece and a little bit more transactional banking items. So just kind of felt felt more focused, I guess, I guess on the the asset gathering aspect because that is literally the business of a bank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Holding a whole bunch of assets. Yeah. So at the time, I knew like I enjoyed my time at the bank, and I thought it was it was a really great place for me. You know, at that point in my career, but I knew for the long term, I wouldn't I wouldn't stay in the banking world. And so, what what was the what was the vision of what would come next? Like, what were you looking for by the time you were ready to leave banking world? Well, another move came up. So, you know, we were living in Portland, Oregon, had just had our first son. And then my husband was offered kind of a lateral move job where he was doing sales on the West Coast. And now it would be sales in the Midwest. So back to where we're from in Kansas. And so we're like, well, we have a kid now. I guess we should move back to Kansas. If, if there's a time to do it, maybe it's now. So I knew that I was probably done with the banking world. And that was kind of a good, clean way to make the break, really, you know, moving back across the country. So I, I looked at all different firms that I could find in, in the Kansas City area and uh, came across the firm that I am with now. That is a a larger RIA, so you know, fifteen people. So, you know, really focused on the comprehensive planning piece, fee only, and you know, big enough that it's run like a business, but still small enough where, you know, my voice can be heard and I can, you know, make a difference. And is that part of what you were looking for? Just you know, you'd been in big firms and then small firms, so like. Am I to infer, you know, not not a coincidence that you sort of deliberately decided 
mid-size at that point, like big, big enough to not be the limited resource to the small firm, small enough to still have your voice heard, unlike a really big firm? I mean, was that a, a conscious decision of, I want to be in this middle size? For sure. Yeah. It was kind of like a, a Goldilocks situation, right? Like, you know, the first one was a little bit too small. I don't want to be the maid anymore. The second one was maybe a little too big. I don't want to be just an, a number. And then, you know, third one was just right, like a good mix of both. So it's a comment we've made on the, on the podcast here before as well, that just I've, I've seen this trend for many, many years now that for so many of us, well, like when you're getting started in the industry, there's often a huge focus on like finding the right job, finding the right firm, finding like the, you know, the perfect place that I can start my career and build my entire career with. But when I actually look just in practice at what happens for most people, like you don't build your career at your first job. I find with startling consistency, you build your career at your third. The first job, you just get something, you find out what you like and you don't like. The second job is usually the opposite of the first. So like whatever you really didn't like about the first, you find the opposite extreme from the second and then deal with whatever the challenges are at the opposite extreme. And then by the time you've done that for a couple of years and you're ready to find the third job, it's like, okay, I've done things at opposite extremes from job number one to job number two. Now I think I've actually got a pretty clear picture of what I really like and the kind of firm I want to be in, the kind of work that I want to be doing. And then the third job is often the one that people stay at. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about the third job being the one, but, you know, I definitely knew, you know, the first one, you just, you think you know what you want, but then you don't really know what it's like until you're in it. Yep. And and then, you know, the, I usually find by the second, like you figure out what you don't like about the first and you definitely want to do something different, but it doesn't actually mean you find the thing you like. You just find the opposite of the thing you didn't like. <laughs> And then you have to take another step on the journey before you maybe fi find that final landing point. <laughs> there you go. It's all part of our story though, right? Indeed. So so what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh, I would say, uh, you know, a lot of the, when you're moving across the country, we, I did that a couple of different times. That's always a hard, a hard journey to make and to start over where you are. So I would say that's a hard one. One of the, other low points would be, you know, at the bank, I was working at the bank in 2008, 2009, when, you know, things got dicey with the Great Recession. So I was let go from my job at the bank at that time. So, so it felt, you know, if that's just kind of a hard thing to go through in general and just a scary thing to go through in general. Fortunately, I was picked back up by the bank a couple weeks later in a different role, which was actually more focused on financial planning and had a more financial planning, you know, career track to it. Wait, wait, so so you, work you got downsized out of the bank and then hired back by the same bank in a different role a few weeks later. <laughs> yes. I know. So it's got to be a little bit of a roller coaster. It was. It was. And it was just funny, not funny, but just interesting because you think about how, you know, the bank on one side is trying to cut costs, right? So they're downsizing here, but then they've also got some strategic things in mind and things that they're hiring for. So then hire you back on the other side, but it's all the same place. So it's like, who's doing the accounting here? You know? <laughs> wow. 
So, so now as you look back, like having gone through this journey over the years, like what do you, what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 plus years ago as you were still earlier career and getting started? One thing I would tell myself is that it's a very small industry. So, you know, anytime you make a connection, make sure that you stay connected to them for the long term because they may lead to other things down the road, right? So like at my current firm, I work with Lucas Butchel, who was in my financial planning program in the undergrad. And, you know, we hadn't connected in years and years, but when I was looking around at firms to work for, once I had made those, you know, two moves across the country, he was a familiar face and someone I could reconnect with, right? So I think all those connections make make a big difference. And especially in this field where, you know, it, it's kind of a small world, right? So, and on the other side, you know, you don't want to burn any bridges. So I... Uh, I'm embarrassed by this story, but I, my first internship, I, you know, worked for the firm for the summer and then they offered me a job at the end of the summer and I just accepted it, you know, knowing that I was still shopping around for other options and knowing that I wanted to leave Kansas and, but I just accepted it because I thought, oh, well, you know, great job offer. Okay. I better take it. And then I ended up getting another offer from the firm in Texas that I ended up working at. And so I, you know, then declined the offer I had already accepted. Kind of, kind of thinking that, I mean, I won't run into them again. You know, you just don't think kind of the long-term impact of that. Right. So, you know, fast forward, you know, a couple years, I see the the people from my internship all the time. Like that firm was at every conference I was at, you know, now that I'm back in Kansas City, I see them all the time. <laughs> so, so it really is like a, a small world and you, and so just make sure you're always professional and, you know, maintaining relationships because you never know where they're going to resurface. So, so what other advice would you give younger or, or newer advisors who are getting started in the industry today and, and just trying to figure out what their path is? A couple of things. I would say, one, get involved, and two, find your thing. So on the get involved piece, you know, I've always been involved with you know, different facets of the industry, whether that's volunteering for stuff, being a part of the FPA, local chapter and things kind of going on there. And I found that the more connected I am, you know, the more opportunities come up, right? So whenever I was moving across the country, I always had connections wherever I was going. So it was, you know, somebody I'd met at a conference or somebody I went to school with, or, you know, somebody I was on a board with. And so, you know, the more involved you are, the more people you have to reach out to in your times of need when you're looking for jobs or looking for help on things. So, so I think that is, is one good piece of advice. And then two, you know, finding your thing, right? So I talked about my thing being writing, which doesn't necessarily 
equate with financial planning, but it's really served me well in in a lot of different ways. So, you know, writing is something that I enjoy. So I just started doing it at, you know, when I worked at the bank, I started writing articles when the new, when the benefits would come out and I would write about, you know, things to consider and how to allocate your 401k. And, you know, it was just kind of a fun thing for me to do. But it really helped me get some recognition from, you know, the higher ups at the bank. And it was a really helpful resource to the people I worked with. So so, it, so that felt good all around. And it kind of set me apart from other bank employees. And then once I got to Aspire, where I was doing a lot of the, the blog content, that was, you know, something valuable that I was providing to the firm and another, you know, way to get, get the word out about Aspire and, and generate new clients. And so I was using something that I love to do anyway to help, you know, my career grow and help my firm grow. And and I guess I'm just wondering, like, what do what do people do if they're not sure what their thing is yet? Yeah, I think it takes a while to figure that out, right? So I I, I don't think if you don't know what it is right now, I think that's okay. I think just keep exploring the things that interest you, right? You know, maybe it's you'll be helpful in podcasting, you know, and you could help your firm get that started. Or maybe you can help with the social media presence of the firm or just, just anything that you're, you already have an interest in that you want to do more of. And I think, you know, most firms are looking for specialists in different areas too, right? So maybe if you're a younger advisor and you have student loans yourself and are looking at consolidation options and, and things, then you can maybe be the firm's expert on that when that comes up with clients, kids or, or younger clients that the firm is working with. Sorry. So, so what are you working on now? Like what has your focus at this point? Right now I am writing my first grown up book. So directed my towards first, that. And I feel like just, you have to clarify because the, the others were children's books. So. <laughs> exactly. Yes. My first grown up book. So it is directed at kind of that younger parent generation, similar to the blogs that I've written over the years. And it's a book called Money Boss Mom, Helping Young Parents Be the Boss of Their Financial Future. And it's about getting the right systems in place to help young parents gain control of their financial lives. So it's it's meant to be, you know, kind of a, a nonlinear book, meaning that you can use it as a resource to to learn the things you need to know. So I, I didn't want it to be a ton of, of fluff, but I wanted it to be like, here are the things where I see young parents fall short and the things that they need to know to be successful financially. So ideally you could, you know, if you want to learn about life insurance, you could just read chapter four and then skip around if you like. If you wanted to you know, learn about what do you need to know about estate planning, you know, read chapter five, that sort of thing. And, and so I guess during like, what, what takes you this direction for now doing a grown up book? I mean, is this just like, I just want to write more ahead it in me? Is this like a, a broader, like marketing strategy of trying to grow your brand or bring in more and different clients? Like just what's the, What's the driver for you on on going from, well, I guess as you put it, from children's books to grown up books? <laughs> well, I think it fits really well into 
you know, what we're doing as a firm where we're trying to have different advisors working with a more specific set of clients. So, you know, I'm working with a lot more of that, you know, 40s and under client base that that are in this financial planning, parenting vortex where they're, you know, maybe paying off their own financial debt from college while saving for their children's college, while saving for retirement, while managing all the expenses of today, you know, while trying to buy a bigger house, that sort of thing. So a lot of the clients I'm working with are in this area and, and really a lot of the newer ones I would bring in would probably look the same. So I think that it fits well into my role at the firm. And I already had a lot of kind of writing about this because I, I wrote, you know, a lot of blogs for my company about, you know, the sort of issues that parents face and, and the things that they should know about financial planning. And so I've had it organized into chapters really for years and just hadn't hadn't done anything more about it. So had a lot of a lot of starter content ready. And I just had to get to the point where I would flush it out. Are you are you doing this again with the same Amazon Direct, or are you going like different publisher route for this? Yeah, so I'm not doing the same thing. I am working through a hybrid publisher, which has been a whole other learning process. But it is through uh, New Degree Press is the publisher. But as a part of it, before you get to the publishing stage, you take a class through the Creator Institute. So. It was a class I had actually heard about at the XYPN conference when there was a couple of speakers who talked about the ways that they wrote a book and how they use it in their business now. And one of the speakers had published their book this way. So I, I looked into it. And what you do is you you talk to the, the people at the Creator Institute, tell them your ideas, and then you start taking this class that is like a one-hour class you know, four o'clock on Tuesday for three months and you learn different facets of writing a good book. So what are the good components of a chapter? What is a good way to tell a story? How should this be laid out? How many words should it be? You know, all those sort of like little nitpicky things that I wouldn't have known going into it, honestly. And so as you go through this class, you have an editor that you're working with and you submit writing along the way. So at different different points, you need to have, you know, 3,000 words submitted or 10,000 words submitted. And it doesn't have to be in chapters or anything yet, but they just give you feedback and tell you, you know, how they would change the writing, how to structure it better, anything that was missing. And so then it was kind of a, a work in progress. And then you get to the end of the, of the class portion and you basically have a first draft of a manuscript. So that's where we're at right now, where I have a, a first draft of, of a manuscript and we're in the kind of pre-sale phase where now I'm getting more feedback from editors and then... I'll have to do some revisions over the next couple of months, incorporating their feedback. And then we, you know, give some content out to some beta readers to read and then give their feedback. And then we incorporate that into it. And then the final stage is having the kind of the heavy pen writers that come in and do all the grammar and punctuation and things like that. 
and then it should be ready for publishing in August of 2021. So, so like a much more, I guess, structured process relative to just the here's Amazon direct upload when you're ready. <laughs> yeah, definitely more structure. And I think for a project like the grown up book is so much longer and so, so much more of a, of a project to handle, right. That it helped to have the accountability along the way of, okay, I need to have these, these words submitted by this date and I need to have this many chapters done by this date. And I think that helped just keep me on task to actually, you know, keep moving forward on it. Because like I said, it had been something on my mind for probably four years and I had taken different steps to organize it and think about what the chapters would look like and all of that back then. But just finding the time to work on it just seemed like a really daunting task. So this program really put it into manageable bite-sized pieces that you just handled one week at a time. Interesting. Interesting. And, 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 and how does that work from a cost end? Like, do they, do you have to pay for this program? Is it just a like different split on revenue when you publish the book and get it out there? How does that work? Yeah. So on, on the front end, you pay, I think it was $400 for the class. And so it, it's kind of like a, just a college level class that you're signing up for. And then once your book, the first draft manuscript is accepted, then you pay $300 to enter the publishing process because that starts paying some of the editing work that's going on. And then you do a pre-sale campaign where it's kind of a, it's called an Indiegogo campaign, but it's kind of kind of like a GoFundMe where people pre, pre-buy copies of your book and then that funds the publishing process. So, so we have, uh, we've been through that phase where we do the presale and then ideally you raise $5,000 in that presale, or you can fund it yourself if you'd like to. And then that gives you the green light to keep moving forward in the publishing process. Interesting. So, so in essence, it's kind of a, you, you pay them $5,000 to just get all the support and the infrastructure and the help for publishing the book, but rather than just pay it up front and and then hope you make it back on book sales. They encourage you to basically do a do a pre-sale kind of campaign on Indiegogo. So if if you got at least some market of people who are interested and want to buy the book, then they essentially just buy the book before the book is is made. And now you know you'll have the book sales when the book is published and the dollars were all will all add up in the end. That's a very cool structure. And and so so what, what's your timeline on when this comes out for you? It uh, should be published in August of 2021. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Is this going to be like the first of many and there's more more grown-up finest books coming? Or, or are you like get, getting to the end of the things in your head that you just needed to get out of your head? <laughs> uh, I think for now, I don't have any other grown-up books out there. I mean, I think if I did another adult book, it would be, maybe it's focused more on the teaching kids about money aspect, but written for the parents instead of through Milton. But yeah, but I think this is enough of a project for now. <laughs> so. so as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes is always even that the, the word success means different things to different people. And so you know, you, you've had this great career progression of of the different firms that you've been through and and now 
as we said, like finding the good landing spot with with firm number three and building and, and going down the road of writing children's books and grown up books and, and building with next generation clients. So like career stuff is going so well, but I'm wondering how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? That's a really good question. I think, you know, as as a parent and as an employee and, you know, as a as a mom, there's a lot of things that you're trying to do all at once, right? So you're, you know, I've been trying to grow my career while having my family and being a good mom and all those things. So I think success is not finding balance because I don't think there's ever really balance for sure, but finding a way to integrate all those things so that, you know, I'm fulfilled career-wise, I'm able to, you know, reach some of my goals, but then also that I have the flexibility in my career to, you know, spend time with my family and not miss the soccer games and, you know, be able to take the kids on vacation and those sort of things. So, so finding a way to, to integrate my life so that I'm enjoying the personal side, but also, you know, continuing to make strides on the career side. I like, I like that framing that just, this isn't about balance. It's about integration. Yeah. yeah Cause I don't, I don't ever feel like there's a balance. Like I don't think it's an even trade. I think, you know, sometimes you're doing more for work and sometimes home life takes over, you know? So I think it's just a figuring out how to get it all to work, work together. Well, and, and I was thinking just in general, I mean, for a lot of people, it's hard enough just to imagine finding the time to write a book, never mind while growing the career and as a, a mother with young children. Like that's a, it's a lot of stuff <laughs> going on. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.